Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm William Hosea with former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial for being a major catalyst for the 6th January insurrection riot schedule to begin this Tuesday. We wanted to again bring on our two distinguished military and constitutional guests to help us analyze what to expect with this trial and a host of other initiatives being laid out by President Joseph Biden. I think they call it impeachment part duh. But anyway, we spared no expense in securing and inviting back Indiana University professor Joseph Hoffman, an award-winning scholar and law teacher who holds the Harry Pratter professorship and past recipient of the Law School Gavel Award. And joining him is Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps. Major General Timberlake has enjoyed a highly successful and distinguished career. Major General Timberlake retired from the Marine Corps in 2018 after 41 years of service. And we're trying to put extra years on that retirement uh, by appearing on Bring It On frequently. And with that, gentlemen, we welcome you both to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. Where, where just, do we start? Just when we thought it was getting a little boring in, in, in politics. Um, uh, tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, starts the impeachment, part two. And now I guess the big argument is, well, he's out of office, so we really shouldn't be impeaching him. And all this should just be mute. And of course, that's not going to fly, but just that rationale. And then I heard earlier in the week that earlier last week that they were going to try to rule not to have the video footage aired during the trial as if that's going to taint uh, the jurors. Um, but everybody's seen it. You have to have been hiding up under a rock not to have seen the graphic views from January 6th. But we'll start off with uh, Professor Hoffman and I know this will be a lengthy conversation, so we'll try to at least go over the approach that the uh, managers are, are going to bring to this impeachment trial, and then the defense team, what we kind of see them possibly offering by way of defense. So, Professor Hoffman, welcome back again to bring it on. Hey. And, uh, help us oh. solve all the world's problems today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I had that magic wand. Um, yeah, we live in interesting times. Um, and um, some of this, uh, you know, I, there was a movie back in the day called The Exorcist. And, you know, for, for people of my generation, that was about the scariest movie that ever existed up until that time. Now, now, now we can maybe debate. There are lots, you know, and now it looks kind of primitive. But, um, boy, it was always like, you know, don't go back up those stairs, right? Whatever. <laughs> Just stop going up those stairs. Oh, or don't, it, don't eat green pea soup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it, in some ways, it feels like life is like that these days. You know, don't turn on the TV. Don't, go, don't, 
don't go, uh, you know, checking the news to see what's going on in Washington because um, it's, you know, it 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 never seems it never seems to be. Um, it, it's always able to top itself. It always it's always worse than we imagine it it will be. Um, so yeah, so this is unprecedented. Obviously, um, we prior to Donald Trump, only two presidents had ever been impeached and had to go through an impeachment trial. And, um, you know, uh, Donald Trump has doubled that number because uh, for the first time, he's about to go through it a second, uh, you know, to go through it twice. Um, he's already been impeached twice. So, so he holds the record. And I, I dare say it's likely that record will stand for quite some time um, as the most impeached president ever. Um, and now, um, now he will go through this second trial. So everybody concedes that the impeachment was timely. He was impeached while he was still president. That happened while he was in office. So there's no issue there. Um, but we've never had a president um, put on trial after um, they had left uh, office, after, after uh, they're no longer the president. And um, I think for almost purely political reasons, uh, the Republican Party has by and large latched onto that as a way to avoid having to say what they really think about Donald Trump or about the events of January 6th. This is a dodge. This is, you know, an escape hatch for a bunch of people who do not want to go on record either in favor of Donald Trump or against Donald Trump at this point. Uh, the Republican Party is obviously having a huge internal conflict over how to proceed in the post-Trump era. And this is a big part of it is they're, they're all trying to avoid having to take a stand. Um, and so that's why they're arguing the procedural issue that we can't have this trial now that he's no longer president. I think the legal argument, um, although not, uh, you know, there's no precedent for it in, in terms of a president, um, I think the, the better of the legal argument goes the other way. Um, the fact that there is a remedy still available that matters, um, that could come out of, a, of the trial, um, and also just the logic of it, that the framers would not have wanted to set up a procedure um, that could lead to that remedy. And of course, I'm talking about banning Trump from ever holding federal office again. Um, that's the second, you know, the two remedies for an impeachment uh, if, if the president is convicted, a removal from office, that's no longer relevant. But the second remedy is, is just to ban from future office. Um, the framers wouldn't have wanted to have that remedy be something that, um, you know, a, a uh, criminal president would be able to avoid by the simple expedient of resigning before uh, the impeachment trial was concluded. And so I think the better of the legal argument is that, yes, this trial can go forward. And yes, that second remedy can be imposed. Um, it seems obvious now that that's not going to happen. Um, there are enough Republicans on record as opposing even having this trial that, um, you know, I mean, this is one of those where I can't say never, you know, aliens could come down and occupy the bodies of a few Republicans and swing some votes, I suppose. But short of that, um, this will not be a conviction. This will be uh, as usual with impeachment trials, this will be a political trial that um, lays out the case against Donald Trump and tries to make the Republicans, um, tries to put them on the hot seat as much as possible. But they've got this escape hatch, so I'm not sure that is even going to work.
Well, they should they should own this because they've given them cover for four years, and um, it's their embarrassment. And we've been the recipients of um, one misstep after another. Uh, and and I think back on the weeks leading up to the decision to impeach, it was uh, former uh, Majority Leader McConnell who said, well, I'm not going to introduce the articles or we're not going to take any action until the day before the inauguration, thus, thus ensuring that we'd be in this dilemma right now. And, and then also, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, weren't you, I think we had you on a year ago and you said that if he acts up again, impeach him again, that's an option. And he acted up again for impeaching him again. But uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm the one who said it, but I certainly agree with that. <laughs> certainly... Yeah, and, and and you know, if anything, things are put in the in the permanent record, and maybe that's the trade-off where history will look back on this time and say, "Boy, that was a failure of our of our government." Uh, I think it was Professor Conkle that that uh, offered that observation that, you know. Don't lose hope that if he if he continues in his pattern, impeach him again. And sure enough, uh, that was an insurrection. Of course, we're now seeing it played over and over and over again in the emotions of members of Congress and uh, a lot of it's heart rendering. And, and I didn't experience that, but I can imagine what it must feel like with people banging on your door saying, where is he, where is she? And the vice president, former vice president Pence, I, I really wonder what's going through his mind because he was a target. Yeah. And uh, so I, yeah. I just offer that, and I and I defer to both uh, General Timberlake and William. Well, I I would certainly like to hear the general's take on on what went down on January sixth. I, I just as far as just one last point about the impeachment trial that's going to start up um, tomorrow, and and that is that um, the House managers the the impeachment um, resolution that was passed by the House um, was very careful and very deliberate about focusing on um, the incitement that occurred um, just prior to the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And um, that, that really was the entire focus here. There, of course, there are many other things that could have been put into that resolution, but they kept it clean. They kept it uh, focused. And um, it's not necessary, this is important, it is not legally necessary for the Senate to conclude that Donald Trump committed what would actually be a crime. There is a federal crime for inciting an insurrection, but whether or not Donald Trump could be um, convicted of that crime, which would be an interesting legal question because it has to do with his state of mind, what was he anticipating and the like, that's really irrelevant in an impeachment. Um, despite the fact that the constitution makes reference to high crimes and misdemeanors, it's always been understood from the very beginning that those are not being used in the legal sense. You don't have to be convicted of a crime in order to be convicted in an impeachment trial. It's simply a matter of whether you betrayed your country in some way, that you betrayed your oath of office in some way. And so the incitement is the focus here, but it doesn't have to qualify as the technical crime under federal law. General, uh, what, what, what were your thoughts watching, um, watching what happened on January 6th? You know, I, I think my thoughts are just like most of America, uh, horrified, mortified. This isn't supposed to happen in America. It happens somewhere else. And I think it's very instructive. If we look at what's going on right now in Myanmar or Myanmar, however you want to pronounce it, right now in Myanmar, you have the military has taken control of the government. 
And the reason the military took control of the government is the sitting president was overwhelmingly reelected, a little bit different than ours, but same thing, overwhelmingly reelected, 80% of the vote went her way. And the military says, ah, we saw mm, fraud. We're not gonna stand for that. So they did just what people do when they commit a coup. The first thing they do is they take over the uh, systems of broadcasting the news, uh, the communication systems. They ran tanks through the streets. They arrested all the former leaders of the previous party. And if you think about it, this, looking in your, in your rear view, this is what happened or could have happened, could have happened on 6th January. And some of that, it's just so familiar with things that we have seen in other countries, the things that we saw here. And most of America, even those individuals that believe in a stolen election did not want to see what they saw on 6th January because they knew for their party, especially the Republican party, hey, how do we get back? How do we go back? Because that's not what we wanted to be, what we want to represent. Clarence, I thought it was also interesting that you said, um, what is Mike's, Mike Pence feeling? Well, in my opinion, Mike Pence is caught up with the rest of the Republican Party. They're in this vicious cycle of hope and fear. They continue to hope that Donald Trump will do the right thing all the time, fearing he's gonna do the right thing for himself. And they can't get out of it. They're in this, this do loop and they, they'll never get out of it. Because again, it says, we hope he'll do the right thing. He was impeached once. He learned his lesson. He won't do anything like this again. Well, here we are now. They said, okay, he lost the election. We hope that he'll just say, okay, concede. They hoped he would concede and just go away. He didn't do that. But they're trapped in this Faustian deal that they made right? And the reason they're trapped is because 70, over 70 million Americans voted for this man. And they're so afraid that if he leaves the party, he takes those votes with them. Already polls are suggesting that if the end of President Biden's first term, and he runs again for a stands for re-election, and you insert a Republican, you pick the Republican, but not Trump, and then you also insert a Trump as a third party candidate, then the Democrats win overwhelmingly because Trump not only splits, but takes the Republican vote away from them. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed. But uh, General Timberlake, as of 21 January, well, on 21 January, NPR ran an article uh, uh, that said one in five defendants who had been arrested and charged for the insurrection were military or prior military with some military uh, affiliation. So when you consider that white supremacist groups recruit military members and plus military uh, recruitment, we get, of course we get all of uh, our recruits from uh, the general population. When, when you take that into consideration, do you think the military needs to address that? Do we need to review the troops, so to speak, or review our policies, take a day to stand down and, and address his head on, much like we did at following tail hook. What, what do you think the military can do about that? Or, or are they already uh, taking some steps? Well, and, and you're right, they are already taking some steps. Uh, the new Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, has says, hey, we're gonna, we are basically going to do a stand down and we're going to root out extremism in the United States military. So he's already gotten a start. And, mm -hmm. and I think, and you know this very well, we already have policies in place right now 
that would assist us greatly. Every individual that comes into the military has to get what's called an ETNAC. Right? And that's just an initial investigation into your background. With the event of social media, the way it is now, and talking to peer groups, we could find out just about everything we want to know about our young people today. Because the one thing about, especially our young people today, they're not bashful. They put it all out there for everybody to see it on the lines. And I think even in those cases where you have individuals that think they belong to a quote unquote secretive type group, it's really not secretive because uh, William, you and I both will remember being in the military when, um, for example, being in the military when uh, Bill Clinton um, declared don't ask, don't tell was a law of the land. And all the individuals, especially the younger soldiers, sailor, airmen, and Marines, they already knew who was who was zooming whom, I like to say. They already knew all of these things. So you didn't have to ask, you didn't have to ask and they didn't have to tell, they didn't have to tell, you didn't have to ask. They already knew those things. Right now, if we want to know about most of the people in the United States military, between looking at the social media and talking to the peer group, you can find out about everything you need to know, in my opinion. So I think we already have policies and uh, policies and processes in place with the clearances that are, are um, not only granted when you first come in, but every time you assume another level of responsibility and you get to the end of that first enlistment period, then we do a review of that clearance. I think it's out there. I think um, we already do some of the things. Do I think it's a threat? Of course it's a threat. It's a matter of how much of a threat yeah. is it. And then also uh, while we're focusing on the military, uh, no, I'm sorry. Well, I'm going to move away from the military to uh, DHS. On 27 January, they issued a national terrorism advisory bulletin uh, because of a heightened threat of terrorism across the United States. And they identified domestic extremists and homegrown violent terrorists. But what they didn't do was call out any of these groups by name. Now, Canada of course, went ahead and designated the Proud Boys as a terrorist group. And I was very surprised to learn that there is no legal mechanism in the United States to designate a terrorist group. But um, do you think that we should, that our government should move in that direction to officially designate some of these groups? And then Prof Professor Hoffman, I'd like you to weigh in on First Amendment considerations. To that question. General? Sure. Well, do, do I think that we should? Uh, yes, I, I think we should. And, and uh, I, am, I am learning something today. William, thank you. I can't believe that we don't have uh, uh, a way of officially designating a group on, in the continental United States as a terror group. And I think that's what I heard you say. Yes. Uh, but should we? Without a doubt, we should. Without a doubt, we should, because any group, you know, one of the things, if you remember going back to your security clearance, every time you try to get it renewed, one of the questions was asked of you was, have you ever associated with a group whose main goal or any goal was to overthrow the United States government? So we already understand there's groups out there that, that would purport to do that. So why would we not have a way of designating those individuals as terror groups? Professor, please. Yeah, I mean, it's so we're uh, legally speaking, I think we're in kind of an evolving world. Um, so uh, we have ways to target foreign terrorist organizations. 
We have laws that allow sanctions to be imposed upon individual and groups who finance such designated organizations. Um, and of course, we have the ability to go after nations that support um, you know, international terrorism. Um, when it comes to domestic uh, terrorism, when it comes to terrorists within our own uh, country, um, it's, not, it's not the kind of problem that we have typically um, addressed through the law. And I think, uh, William, I think there is um, some concern that um, it might be dangerous to move down the path of letting the government be in charge of designating who is a terrorist. So, you know, it's easy for us to say, hey, let's, uh, let's all vote. How many want to designate the Proud Boys to be domestic terrorists? We all raise our hands, right? But, um, you know, um, a month ago, we had someone in the White House who was um, anxious to designate groups like uh, Black Lives Matter, um, groups that aren't even groups like Antifa, whatever the hell that means. Um, you know, whatever they, they don't, what I mean is they don't have a structure. They're not a group. They're the group that's not a group. Right. Um, but, but Black Lives Matter, maybe, maybe the ACLU, right. Um, would have been designated a terror organization. Um, is that really the path that we want to go down or have we not just lived through a time that should have taught us the danger of letting the government pick and choose and punish people based on ideology. Now, the First Amendment absolutely does not protect people who attack the Capitol building for whatever reason. Doesn't matter what signs they're carrying, doesn't matter what slogans they're chanting when they do it. The First Amendment does not protect people who incite them to do it if that incitement creates an imminent threat. If there is an imminent risk of violence or lawlessness as the result of someone's speech. That speech is not protected by the First Amendment. End of story. You know, Donald Trump does not get to claim a First Amendment right to stand up in front of a crowd of people, many of them armed, and incite them to immediately march on the Capitol and commit violence. That is not a First Amendment uh, protected kind of speech. So that's not a First Amendment issue, but in a more general way to designate terror organizations, it, it begins to, you know, we, we've lived through McCarthyism. It isn't the first time that our government has gotten out of control and, um, you know, chosen sides and started to try to act in these kinds of nefarious ways. Uh, we lived through McCarthyism. During uh, earlier wars, you know, we, we enacted laws that allowed the government to go after people who belonged to communist parties or even received communist literature or went to meetings and talked about communism. Um, you know, we've been through these periods in the past and having just lived through another one, I'm not sure I want the government to have that power. I want to punish people when they step out of line and the First Amendment does not protect them just because the reason they step out of line is because they have some crazy beliefs. If you've just joined us, uh, we're having a conversation with Indiana University Professor Joseph Hoffman, who you've just heard. He's an award-winning scholar and law teacher and retired Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, we're analyzing uh, the events leading up to the second, the second now impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And um, not lost in all this, too, is the timing of the trial. If this trial had occurred earlier, I, I dare say perhaps more Republicans would have been on board 
and and postulating that they might vote uh, guilty. But uh, I want to get back to a point in the conversation where we were talking about questionable groups or uh, insurrectionist type of groups. Uh, but then there are insurrectionist type of representatives. And one was just uh, defrocked or stripped of her assignments. And that was the QAnon queen herself, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, and uh, Professor uh, Hoffman, is it wrong to perhaps move to just remove her from uh, Congress? Uh, Nancy Pelosi said when questioned in, in a press, uh, press conference that if any of her caucus members had acted in such a fashion, she would not hesitate to try to have them removed. In other words, there's no place here for that. It's uh, incendiary language. Um, I mean, to pose with, a, with an AR-15 with uh, three members of Congress, you're not even a member, you wanna become part of this uh, August bar body and, and you're posing with an AR-15 and saying, I'm going hunting for her. And then you get in there and, and your, your rhetoric is just, uh, it's suspect, it's incendiary, it's, it's just inciting passions all over the place. Should she, should she have just been kicked out? Well, I think the case is pretty is pretty strong for that. Congress, both each House of Congress has the ability to expel its own members. Um, I don't know whether the Democrats would have had the votes to do that. That's such an extreme step that it, and it's taken so rarely in the history of our country that I don't know if they would have had the votes. I don't know if they even would have gotten all of their own members to vote that way. Um, I think the case is there, the legal case, you know, it's not a legal issue, it's a political issue, but I mean, the case for saying that she's not fit to serve um, is, a, is it's a good case. I think the, the, the real issue right now around um, Ms. Green is, um, you know, the Democrats, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think they're in a bit of a, a, a dilemma about how to handle it because I think they see political value, once again, to putting the Republicans on the hot seat. If, if, if in two, you know, Democrats are facing a tough election in two years, it's always tough for the party in power to retain power during the first midterm election. Historically, that, that election does not go well uh, two years after a party takes control of the presidency and Congress. And the Democrats are, you know, holding razor thin margins in both uh, the Senate. Senate is as narrow as it can get. The House, not much better. And I think the Democrats are looking down the road and saying, you know, the more Ms. Green is in the news, um, the more likely it is that people are not going to be voting for the Republicans two years from now. And we might manage to squeak through and, and retain our majorities. I think that's the political calculus that makes this difficult for the Democrats. The, the, the alternative is to go after her more than they have, you know, stripping her from the committees. Um, I think that was a more of a symbolic move, but to go after her more than that um, risks making her a martyr and, um, you know, upping the ante on the, in that way might deprive them of a political issue that would benefit them in, in those 20, uh, 2022 elections. So that's kind of just how it looks to me. And then one, Follow-up uh, question, uh, we talked about steps to ensure that an attack on the Capitol or any other federal facility doesn't occur in the future. That falls into the lap, of course, of General Lloyd Austin, 
um, and also General Russell Honore. How do we assess his role, General Russell Honore? How do we how do we predict how he may help manage things? Um, you, both of our former, or well, both of our former serving military uh, guests here today, uh, or host and guests, uh, did you serve under him in any capacity, or, or did you meet the general, or, or what's your experience with him? Well, um, General Timberlake. Yeah, I'll go first. And if you're talking about Lieutenant General Honore. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I personally have never served under him. Uh, I like a rest of I like the rest of America watched what he was able to do after uh, Katrina and the aftermath of Katrina, and he was able to pull things together very quickly. And he was able to show the nation action in a lot of areas where previously she had seen inaction. Okay, or less action than she wanted to see. So I think he did a great job with that. But right now, you know, I, I, I view his position as more of a, a consultant. He is an outside consultant brought in to take a look at a situation and then he will deliver a report or a, a progress report or a lack of progress report, but a report on what he observed and probably how some individuals and units and organizations can get better in the future. And, and, that's, and that's the only role in my mind that he should have. He's not an elected official. Okay, so he doesn't really have an official capacity, but he is a consultant and all elected officials use consultants, not all, but a large, large majority, just like business owners bring in consultants. And that's just what they are, consultants. General Timberlake, you, you swore an oath to the Constitution culminating in 41 years of service. And uh, Professor Hoffman, you are a constitutional scholar. How does it make you feel when after an insurrection, death and destruction, you have elected officials representing us and they don't wanna have any accountability for, for that event. Now, they're not, they're supporting Donald Trump, but they're not supporting any of the people, the actors uh, who've been arrested and charged. I, I find that really odd. So I'd, I'd just like to get something from uh, some thoughts from both of you on that one. Well, I think it's amazing that um, they too take an oath. Okay, I, I took an oath and my oath has no expiration date, but they too take an oath upon assuming office. Okay, it's not the same as mine, but it's an oath and it talks about what they will or will not do and what they should and should not do. And I believe that it's impossible for them to defend former President Trump, and yet not defend the actions of those that he incited. So I think you, you have, uh, they've painted themselves in a very, uh, very tight corner, very tight group, and they have to either go all in or not in. And right now they're trying to, again, because they are caught in the cycle of, we hope that things will turn out well, but we fear it's gonna be just like Trump as always been, and that's Trump's gonna be Trump. And that's, that's the whole problem with that. That's the problem with Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and I agree with the professor. If, I, if I'm the Democrats, I'm saying, hey, let her talk. The more she talks, the better we look. The more she talks, the more the target's on her. And the more the Republican Party has to defend their extreme, her extremisms, her thoughts, her crazy kooky conspiracies. And that using that term was uh, Mitch McConnell said that, not Craig Timberlake, but it's crazy kooky conspiracies. 
So uh, again, you ask a question of how do I feel? I, I feel it's horrible that they take on oath of office also, and they don't see that they're not being truthful to that oath of office. Yeah, I mean, one of the saddest things um, that I've ever experienced in my life has been to watch uh, people who I thought were respectable individuals who, uh, as the general said, in many cases had taken oaths to the Constitution, people who are trained as lawyers, people who have uh, served in other kinds of, of honorable capacities, um, do so many dishonorable things in the last uh, four years and, and in the last, you know, four weeks. Um, you know, you go back and you, you replay the tapes of things that Lindsey Graham said back before Trump, back when he was running against Trump um, for the Republican nomination. You, you see, you know, go back and roll the tape and see how he described Donald Trump back then and, um, and then watch how he behaves now. It's been um, it's just been absolutely disheartening to see people willing to betray what I would consider to be their most, you know, important beliefs and to betray the Constitution in the way that these individuals have. And, you know, the, the, the general, you know, the point about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is um, it, it's a valid one that if you're, you know, if you're a Democrat, you, you want to basically make the Republican Party own her. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that first, first of all, there are plenty of people, you know, she's going to keep getting elected in her district because the gerrymandering and the nature of that district in North Georgia has uh, made it so that, um, you know, she could literally shoot someone dead on Fifth Avenue or, you know, in Dalton, Georgia, where she's, you know, where she represents and uh, people would vote for her anyway. And um, that's disheartening that um, no matter how crazy she is, that she's going to keep get elect getting elected to Congress. I think, I think to be a little more subtle about the point or nuanced, I think what the Democrats are hoping is that out in the world, they know this isn't true in D.C., right? The, it, the D.C. politicians on the Republican side are going to twist themselves in knots to continue to avoid coming out against Green or Trump or any of the other crazies that we have seen on the right. They're going to twist themselves in knots because they see it as a matter of self-preservation. It's, it's simple politics for them. So the pushback isn't going to come there. What the Democrats are hoping and praying is that out in the country, there are enough normal people who find that behavior of someone like Green to be reprehensible, to be ugly, to be evil, uh, to be contrary to everything we stand for as Americans that if the Republican Party is forced to kind of at least half own her, it's going to turn some some votes against the Republicans, votes that the Democrats may need in 2022 to, to retain power. That is a dangerous game, I have to say. Um, that is a dangerous game because um, they could guess wrong about that and empower these people in ways that could cause our country to be in even worse trouble two years or four years from now than we have been. That's a dangerous game. It's a risky game. And yeah. having lived through the last four years, I am very nervous about playing that game and letting these people have their say and giving them the ability to go on the news and on the Internet and say all the ridiculous stuff that they say, because I can't predict with certainty that that the good side's going to win in the political world two years or four years from now. And that terrifies me. Talk about oh. terrorism. 
talk about terrorism. By the way, I, I do <laughs> want to clarify something because we didn't get back to it in the last question. We do have a federal statute that defines domestic terrorism, but it requires someone to act in a way that is dangerous to human life. So, you know, arguably the people who actually invaded the Capitol um, were, were, you know, were committing acts of domestic terrorism. You know, whenever uh, I hear about Taylor Greene, I honestly wonder about her mental capacity. Um, is there any way for mental fitness to be um, gauged? And, and does Nancy Pelosi have any uh, mechanisms to just expel her from, from the uh, Congress? Well, so expulsion is is provided for in the Constitution, and it, it, it's like impeachment. It's sort of the congressional equivalent. So it's actually been held that Congress people, senators, representatives, are not technically subject to the impeachment process that is provided for all federal officials in the Constitution. They're a special exception. And the reason they're a special exception is because there's a separate provision in the Constitution. It's Article One, Section 5, Clause 2, that says each House of Congress can punish its members for disorderly behavior and, and I'm quoting now, and with the concurrence of two thirds expel a member. So yes, she could be expelled. She certainly could be censured prior to expulsion. That only requires a majority vote. Um, she could, and I, I think stripping people of their committee assignments is a form of punishment. Um, and that's already happened. But to expel her, you need two thirds vote. And th that, that's just not going to happen in the House of Representatives right now. You know, I was thinking um, the secret vote that was held to sort of undermine Liz Cheney, uh, Representative Liz Cheney, um, to me is, is really telling. And when we talk of, OK, we'll keep backing uh, Taylor Green and see how that backfires in your face. but. Liz Cheney was a well-respected, is a well-respected member. And this tactic, is it such an embrace of Trumpism or, or is the Republican Party just been totally taken over by individuals who are just out there? Uh, or are they desperate for power, do anything to cling to power? Uh, either gentleman, if you want to comment on that. Well, so I think the most... I mean, in some ways, the most interesting thing that came out of that whole episode is that um, she prevailed in the House by 145 to 61. So it, within the Republican caucus, she won that vote, 145 to 61. That points directly to what General Timberlake's been saying you know, throughout our conversation today, which is that the Republicans are caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, I don't, I don't have any pity on them. They, they put themselves there. Right. <laughs> they they wedged themselves between the rock and the hard place. Um, so I have no pity for them. But but uh, they are caught. And uh, the fact that at the end of the day, Cheney votes, you know, the way she does and um, on impeachment. And then uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of bluster and a lot of criticism. But at the end of the day, the House of Representatives on the Republican side, which is filled with crazies, votes you know, 145 to 61 to keep her in charge. So that tells me that there's a lot of people on the Republican side who are incredibly cynical about what they're up to right now. They are talking the talk about being Trumpists and 
and and and you know giving someone like Green a, a you know a slap on the wrist, whatever, um, because they don't want to lose those votes. But they ended up voting for Cheney to stay in power in the Republican Party. So, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and again, I, I think that the, the Republicans, as you said, they've wedged themselves in between this rock and a hard place. Uh, I, I'd agree, but I, I really believe that they're saying, okay, how do we get back to where we were before Trump? And yet we still have to deal with Trump in the meantime. And again, I believe that that is their dilemma. They, they keep hoping and, and praying that Trump will do the right thing. He's only gonna do the right thing for himself. And they're caught and there's not a lot they can do about it at this time. I, I, I believe Lindsey Graham about a week ago, I don't, I don't have the exact quote uh, in front of me right now, but he said words publicly to the effect that we cannot win in 2022 without Donald Trump. And he said, without Donald Trump, not just without Trump voters. He said, we cannot, we cannot win in 2022 taking back you know, the House and Senate. We cannot do that without Donald Trump. They are in a precarious situation if that is a prevailing thought, but Lindsey Graham, I, I don't put too much credence in Lindsey Graham anymore. No, no, but I think that I think that statement expresses precisely the dilemma that General Timberlake's been referring to. This yeah. is what they believe. They believe they have to stay on Trump's good side or they have essentially given up any hope of winning the election. And so we're going to watch two years of this rock and hard place right. situation, and it's going to produce horrible outcomes. It's going to really affect our, our body politic in ways that, you know, I can't even begin to predict. Is, uh, is uh, Minority Leader McConnell developing a spine now? Uh, I, I'm hearing these comments that give me hope that uh, rational minds are beginning to take hold in, in Congress. I, it's all politics. And, but see, the politics in the Senate are different. And I know General Timberlake's nodding and says, I, I, I'll, I'll keep my comment short and turn to you, General. But I mean, McConnell faces a different calculus. He needs people to win statewide elections for him to regain control of the Senate. They're close, right? It's as close as it could get, 50-50. Right. But he needs to flip a cup, you know, a seat or two, and you know, depending on how other races go. And um, and he knows his people have to win statewide elections. So he's more worried about the effect of the crazies, people like Green. He's more worried about what that does to the brand than the House people are. McCarthy in the House doesn't care about that at all because those House districts are so gerrymandered and so one-sided that there's only a handful left where moderates matter. It's almost all predetermined. So, you know, McCarthy can roll with the Trumpists. He doesn't have to worry about it, but McConnell is more worried. I think McConnell seriously worries that um, if the Republicans don't break with Trump, that he is not going to be able to take back the Senate because the political calculations are different. And, and think about it. Mitch McConnell um, has a history of being for Mitch McConnell. Okay, Mitch McConnell has always been about Mitch McConnell. And it's like, where do I get my power? How do I get my power back? That's what I'm more concerned with. I'm not concerned with, with Trump or anybody else for that matter. Mitch McConnell knows he's got Kentucky firmly in his grasp. Uh, McGrath spent a lot of money there trying to defeat Mitch McConnell. She didn't pull it off. It's doubtful that anyone else is going to beat Mitch McConnell out of Kentucky. He's there and he knows that. And remember what Mitch McConnell, he has said things like, for instance, you go back to Obama. Hey, my, my whole soul in life, my mission in life is to make Obama a one-term president. Mitch McConnell has been the driving force behind the Republicans and, and uh, the appointment of federal judges. 
and people to the Supreme Court, that's Mitch McConnell. That's not necessarily the president. That has been Mitch McConnell. And he is who he's always been, Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And, and you know, when you talk about a rock and a hard place, you know, for Mitch McConnell, the House of Representatives, Republicans are part of the, you know, I don't know which side you want to call it. But I mean, he's he, he has to worry about what his own Republicans are doing in the House because he needs the Senate people to look like they are moderates. Well, we're about 15 minutes uh, to go in this conversation. If you've just joined us, you're listening to uh, IU Professor Joseph Hoffman and also retired Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, we've talked about Trump and Trumpism enough in this interview. Uh, I want to shift gears to Joseph Biden, who is the duly elected president, legally elected president, uh, overwhelmingly elected president. But the question is now, how is he going to govern? Uh, reconciliation will get you so far, but he's got to win some friends on the other side. And he's been saying he wants to, he wants to reach out. Uh, do you think some are saying that maybe he's a little bit too salt that he should just barrel through legislation? Or do you think that his tact is correct and just stay the course and win them over? I, I, I again, uh, defer to uh, both our guests on that. General, why don't you take, take the first shot on this one? Sure. Um, I, I personally would like to see the president of the United States irrespective of what party he or she represents, tried to reach across and bring others with them. I believe that politicians, um, the, the very nature of the word the politics to me is about compromise. I believe that America will try to get back to center. I would like to see Biden lead that effort. I don't know that there are enough people on the other side that even if he does reach across, will accept his extended hand and not smack his extended hand. Because there are some individuals out there that again, hey, they're playing the long game. It's like, well, we got four years of Biden. What are we can do to make sure we don't have eight years of Biden is what they're going to try to do. You know, the country, country's divided. I mean, have we been more divided? Yeah, but you know, again, Trump got 75 or 70 million votes. You know, Biden got enough more to win the election. There's a lot of people on the other side and perhaps they're not willing to come across. I don't know. But I think Biden should continue to do it. He should continue to attempt to reach across. And then when it comes time, America's going to look for decisive leadership. And then he is going to have to do what his party and hopefully the American people demand. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a pretty good feeling about what's happened, even just in these first few weeks of the Biden presidency. Because um, all the rhetoric from President Biden has been about what, what General Timberlake said. It, all the rhetoric has been about, I'm, I'm a president for all Americans. I'm going to look out for the interests of people who didn't vote for me just as much as those who did. And he's also been making the right noises in terms of his relations with Congress, that he wants to work across the aisle. He met with the 10 senators recently about um, the, the stimulus package and... Um, but at the same time, he's not letting it dictate terms, right? He's, he's moving forward with a big package because he thinks that's what we got to have. Look, the, the ability of Joe Biden to work with people in Congress and to, to do some kind of compromise, which is the normal, it's, where, it's, it's in his DNA, it's who he is, right? He's going to try to do it. The ability to do it is all gonna come down to the politics and the politics is all gonna come down to Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate. 
the Democrats have the vote in the House and there's no filibuster in the House. So anything the Democrats want to do, anything President Biden wants to do and his party backs him on it, he'll have the votes in the House to get that done. That's not an issue. It's all about the Senate. It's all about the filibuster. It's all about getting to 60 on an issue that isn't reconciliation or budget related. On any other, other matters, he's got to get to 60. And the question of whether he can get to 60 is all dependent on whether Mitch McConnell thinks that he'll be better off in 2022 looking like he cooperated at least a little bit with Joe Biden. He's not going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Mitch McConnell doesn't have a spine and he doesn't know right from wrong in the way that most people do. Mitch McConnell is going to do what he thinks will help his party in 2022. And that makes him the same as a lot of other politicians. I don't mean to single him out. Right? That's kind of the nature of the game for politicians is to be politicians. And he's going to do what he thinks is best for the Republicans to win in 2022. And that might be to cut Joe Biden a little slack and look like you're actually trying to govern a little bit, like you're trying to compromise a little bit. Too early to tell. That's not going to do the job on the stimulus package, which is why the Democrats are not waiting. They're going to go forward. Right. I, my strong prediction is we're going to see this rammed through by the Democrats with virtually zero Republican support. Um, but beyond that, are there things where McConnell might meet him partway? Maybe there are, but it's all because of politics, not because it's the right thing to do. As, uh, as a black man in America, when I look at, of course, I think Donald Trump is a, a racist, a bigot, anything else into that category. And you have the overwhelming majority of Republicans in both houses supporting him, uh, most in lockstep. And so I consider them bigots as well because they support him and his policies. I was listening to uh, Tiffany Cross yesterday on MSNBC. She asked a question I thought was very good. She said, as far as Joe Biden reaching across the aisle, how do you meet a bigot halfway? How do you do that? Anybody want to respond? <laughs> you know, I, I think um, the one thing you have to be very careful of doing, though, uh, if, if you believe that that individual is a bigot and you may never be able to reach across to him. But if you're trying to reach across to some of those individuals that support him, the worst thing to do probably is to call him a bigot because they will feel because they support him, you're calling them a bigot. So you have to back the rhetoric down just a little bit and you got to find a way to work around them because you won't be able to go through them if they are truly a bigot. It's not going to work for you. So I think you have to go around them. Uh, I, I have talked to many people that are Trump supporters and I have noticed personally that if I open up with my true feelings on Donald John Trump, I don't get very far with them. As a matter of fact, they usually turn me off and they immediately start defending Donald John Trump, not because they're so much in love with him, but because they feel like I'm attacking them. So I don't know how you meet a bigot halfway, but I suggest if you want to meet that bigot halfway, you may want to go around the bigot rather than through the bigot. And You know, I understand what you're saying. One of my biggest fears is that Joe Biden will make the same mistake that Obama made early on in his presidency, naively uh, believing that. Republicans were going to work with him when on the day of his inauguration, they were meeting and, and uh, vowing never to work with him and to uh, filibuster any and everything he wanted to propose, whether it was good for the country or not. 
So I'm just hoping Joe Biden does not go down that path, which is why I'm one that prefers to take the hard line. Just crush them like a cockroach right now and do whatever it takes to right the ship. And then we can do unity next year. But right now, there are more pressing needs than unity with Republicans, which is not something that they're interested in. I yield a balance of my time. All right. And on that, I, I have to comment that I'm getting visions of Archie Bunker sitting in his living room right now. Uh, but but he was managed and he was dealt with. And uh, that classic scene where um, Sammy Davis Jr. reached over and kissed him was, was priceless. Anyway, um, I, I, I want to go back to something. I've been hearing the, the, the phrase over and over again, and I, and I did have a question about this. Uh, filibuster. Should, as a tactic, the filibuster be done away with? Um, and then also, along the same line, should the courts be stacked to reflect uh, perhaps maybe not so much of a conservative uh, slant? Now, I think we talked about this before, Professor Hoffman, especially about the Supreme Court. But the filibuster, what's your thought on the filibuster being done away with? I'm nervous. I'm nervous because, um, you know, who was it that got rid of the filibuster for judicial appointments? It was the Democrats who did that. And then it came back to bite them um, when uh, Mitch McConnell used that tactic to ram through so many judges, federal judges, and um, you know, a, a, a contested nomination on the Supreme Court. Look, you can't trust these people as far as you can throw them. And, and that was a mistake that we should never make again, to trust that people are gonna behave civilly and, and meet people halfway. No, I don't trust that is gonna happen. I, I completely agree with William, it's not. But, but to, get, to basically ratchet up the, the, the fight by getting rid of the filibuster means you are at risk um, uh, you know, I, let me put it this way. If, if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, I honestly don't think the Democrats are going to use that power as ruthlessly as the other side will when it's their turn. And that's what I'm afraid of. That's why well, I'm nervous. I, I, and I must apologize because I realize that we have, we have a lot of listeners and a lot of listeners may not know what the concepts of reconciliation and filibuster mean. So can we take a moment and define that uh, just yeah. so we can bring everyone up to speed? Sure. So in the Senate, by tradition, it's just an internal Senate rule. There's nothing in the Constitution about it. There's not even a statute about it. By Senate rules and tradition, if a senator wants to block legislation, they can essentially block it, and it takes 60 votes to overcome that block. This goes, Think of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, you know, the old movie, right? Um, standing up on the Senate floor and just talking until you, you know, until 60 people vote against you. That's the filibuster. The filibuster doesn't apply to strictly budgetary matters. And reconciliation means reconciling a bunch of budgetary matters. And there are a variety of ways in which that process can be used to get certain things done. The stimulus package is a perfect example. The federal government can spend lots of its money without passing a normal statute to do so through the budgeting process called reconciliation. And that's how the Democrats can get this big stimulus thing through without having to worry about having 60 votes. They've got 50 and they get to break the tie, but the filibuster requires overcoming it with 60 votes. And right now, neither side would have that, you know, that power. And the threat of course, is the Democrats could vote with their 50 plus, you know, plus the vice president's vote they could change the rule and get rid of the filibuster. But as I said, 
I'd be more afraid of what the other side would do with that power than I would be the Democrats, because the Democrats are probably going to act normally about it and not do crazy things once the filibuster is gone. See that the uh, the little hand is is at the top of the hour, and the bigger hand is quickly sweeping us to a close. Um, as always, this is engaging conversation, but this is on the front end of the second impeachment of Donald John Trump. And I just want to extend this invitation to both our guests to consider strongly joining us on the other side to what may be a shocking, well, no, let me stop it, to what happens after uh, this impeachment, almost at hope there. But um, it'll happen and I guess it'll get archived for history's sake. And all of this makes for excellent case study. And, and I'm pretty sure, Professor Hoffman, you're, you're designing courses to sort of look at this in the future. Um, but we do want to thank you both for joining us. And um, boy, there's, there's much more to talk about, but we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it on the other side. Um, we want to thank Indiana University Professor Joseph Hoffman an award-winning scholar and law teacher, retired Major General Craig Hugh Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps for helping us to examine a range of issues related to the second impeachment trial for former President Donald Trump and other notable issues related to President Joseph Biden's first few weeks in office. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear them. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address again is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, and our assistant producer is William Hosea. Our consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker for WFHB. I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.